we are in a, a very fragile uh, period in time and I mean everything that we are doing is to try to accelerate the day in which we can continue to progress uh, as a civilization without the expense of destroying the environment. That's Vince Allen, a co-founder of SunDrive, and this is Wildcats. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Wild Hearts, a podcast dedicated to sharing the real stories of founders, the passionate few taking giant leaps forward. We're here to uncover the lessons from the founders looking to change the world and the investors who back them. This podcast is brought to you by the team at Blackbird, and I'm your host, Mason Yates. There are two unavoidable facts of the 21st century. One, the world has an insatiable appetite for energy, and two, Our current energy consumption is too reliant on fossil fuels and it's simply not sustainable. These facts are on a collision course and something's got to give. My two guests today, Vince Allen and David Hu, are the co-founders of SunDrive. SunDrive is a solar technology company aiming to create low-cost, energy-efficient and more material-abundant solar cells. In today's episode, we'll hear about solar energy in Australia what sort of milestones do you need to hit in order to convince investors that you're taking the first steps to building a category-defining business and how SunDrive wants to become that business? We'll also hear from Nikki Shivak, co-founder of Blackbird Ventures, on finding founders who do what they say to the backlash from the clean tech graveyard of the late 2000s. SunDrive is moving from Wollongong to Sydney, so if you'd like to join the team or check out what they're doing in further detail, I'll leave the website URL in the show notes. Without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Vince will be speaking first, followed by David. Enjoy. So every hour the sun provides enough energy to power the world for a year. Why can't we capture that energy efficiently? What are some of the challenges? Yeah, so we're, we're very early on in terms of working out how to capture the sun's energy. It's by far uh, the biggest in terms of what's abundant out there, it's it's the largest energy source that we know of. Um, but we're still very early on in working out how to capture that. So today, only 3% of the world's electricity uh, comes from solar. There is still a long road ahead of us. And yeah, the technology today is not is not well suited for the longer term. And I can, yeah, I can sort of jump into that as we... Name, as we why, why don't you start off by just talking about what is a solar panel now and what are some of the components of it? Why, why isn't the technology up to scratch? Yeah. So in, in its basic form, a solar panel basically converts sunlight into electricity. They are usually one meter by two meters and they contain an array of squares or sometimes rectangles. Uh, and each one of those is a solar cell, uh, which is what we're working on. And each, each solar panel has 60 to 90 solar cells. And every year the industry is producing, last year it was about 20 billion solar cells were made. And yeah, there are, in terms of what types of solar cells are out there, there's actually a, a very wide range of different types of solar cells. And the mainstream technology is only one type. And this mainstream technology, which has obviously been around for, for, for decades, has enjoyed significant cost reductions, efficiencies having have improved, but they're getting very close to their, their limitations. And manufacturers today are already realizing this and they're they're looking at sort of what's next. And, the bed. 
Yeah, and there's a whole bunch of challenges with getting to these next generation solar cells. And I mean, basically everything we're working on is to, to overcome some of those barriers. And so what are some of the drivers in the efficiencies that the existing solar cells or solar panels have been able to produce? I think it all comes down to uh, the type of structure that's used. So there are different types of solar cell structures out there. And each structure has a sort of a maximum efficiency potential. So that's a conversion efficiency of light into electricity. Um, and they all have sort of a fundamental cost potential as well. And with the industry growing very quickly in the last sort of couple of decades, a lot of those benefits have already been captured. And so, yeah, this is sort of the reason why a lot of the manufacturers today are, are aggressively looking at other types of cell structures that have a, a larger efficiency potential, have more potential for cost reduction. And the biggest, well, yeah, one of the biggest barriers to these next generation solar cell structures is, is actually down to the use of silver. Mm. So if you look very closely at a, at a solar cell, you'll see a series of, of lines on the surface. And each one of those lines is, is made of silver paste. Wow. Um, and yeah, it, it sort of is a, is a limitation. Is it um, maybe just give you a bit of background about silver. So if you look closely to solar cells, then there's been said that there's a bunch of lines and they're actually, there's, they're like, like electrodes, you know, the terminals on the battery, mm -hmm. they're like electrodes in the solar cell. So basically the function of that is to collect and extract the electricity generated on the solar cell. And those are not made by pure silver. They're actually made of silver paste. So what they do is they grind the silver into powder and they put additives in it. Then it becomes a silver paste. Can we continue to use silver at the rate that we're using it? Break down the scaling challenges. So there's really three kind of challenges that silver is tied to. The first one is obviously material abundancy. So, I mean, we're very early on in where the solar industry can be. And already today, uh, about 20% of the world's industrial silver consumption just goes into making solar cells. Hmm. And there are predictions by the end of this decade that the industry or the manufacturing capacity is going to grow by five times. And that obviously is a, is a big challenge. So material abundance is sort of the first challenge tied to silver. The second is sort of touched on it earlier, trying to get to more efficient solar cell structures. And going to these next generation solar cell structures require even more silver. So you kind of, you're stuck in this kind of dilemma where the industry wants to grow, but the industry also wants to go to more efficient solar cells. And silver is, is limiting both of those things uh, simultaneously. Well, yeah, I mean, you mentioned 20 billion solar panels were produced last year. That's something like 3% of the, I, I guess, the globes. Solar cells, yeah. 3% of the world's electricity. Yeah. If you look at total energy, it's probably about 1%. Times by five. Times are by five, and also as as the population grows, as yep. uh, developing countries become more developed, energy needs are only going to increase. So we're we're really very early on. Those mm. are where the industry can be. Although the current solar cell structures have suited us well to get to this point, 
more advanced solar cells are going to be needed and we need to get around this, this silver problem. So yeah, our technology is all, is all about copper. Mm. Uh, copper is a thousand times more abundant and is a hundred times cheaper than silver. So that obviously solves the material abundancy challenge. We can also go to more efficient cell structures without the added penalty of using more silver. And then the third benefit is also, it actually comes down to reducing material usage. So if you look at a solar cell, uh, most of the material is actually silicon. 90% of the material is silicon. And one of the driving factors to sort of solar panels getting cheaper is the solar cell thickness has becoming has become thinner and thinner. So less silicon is needed. Mm. And current technology is now at a point where it's becoming very difficult for solar cells to become any thinner. And that is, that's actually largely due, due to the, the process or the way in which silver is applied to the cell. So there's a certain, certain amount of mechanical and thermal stress that's induced in the solar cell and the solar cell thickness needs to be sufficient to compensate for that. So that's also a challenge with silver. And now our copper process is a lot more gentle, so the cells can be thinner as well. So that's also saving on material usage. So yeah, it really comes down to material abundancy, efficiency, and material usage. And silver is halting progress on all three of those. What did it start out like? Can you just sort of rewind back to the, the early days? What even drove you both to energy? And how did you sort of earn the insight that these would be the key drivers for uh, new solar panels? Sure. So kind of going quite far back in terms of how I got involved in energy. I mean, I've always, I've always been very interested in building new things right through high school. It didn't matter if it was woodwork, metalwork, anything that I could make, I sort of really enjoyed and seemed to do quite well in and when I first heard that UNSW was offering a, a complete undergraduate degree in solar energy, which was the, the first in the world at the time, yeah, I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. And that was 2007 is when I started. Okay. I think the degree came out in the early 2000s. So yeah. At UNSW. Yeah, at UNSW. And back then, yeah. <laughs> I really thought that much about solar energy and yeah, it was just a very different emerging kind of field. And, and yeah, kind of going back to sort of my interest in building things, I think solar cells, out of all the different semiconductor devices, solar cells are the only ones that you can really kind of pick up and, and feel and see it. And uh, it fits in the palm of your hand and you can look at it, understand it and manipulate it. It's much harder to do that with an integrated chip or a, sort of a tiny transistor. So that, yeah, that sort of fueled the kind of the interest in, in first understanding how solar cells are made and then trying to make them better. How about you, David? I can actually answer this question in one word, is Vince. <laughs> <laughs> well, how did you guys meet? That's right, mate. Yeah. You had a commerce degree, right, David? Yeah. yeah. Um, I went to USW in 2008 and went to the School of Business. As an international student, that's a very common degree you choose, which is accounting and finance. We asked probably 99% of the Chinese students on the street and they were major, like, what do you study? Probably accounting and finance. <laughs> and so you guys would have met in 2012? 
So we we actually met way back in like 08, 09. We were under we were flatmates back in undergrad. Mm. So well before starting Sundrive, a good mm. six years before starting Sundrive. And mm. I think that yeah, it was it was quite I think it's quite important to get to know the other person very well outside mm, that's, of that's intimate environment of a mm. of, of a startup. Totally. And yeah, it was sort of in well, it would have been about 2014. I, I reached out to, to Dave. It was a China, in China working at Citibank at the time, I think. And uh, yeah, it was during my PhD. I, I, I was telling him that I, I was building some new equipment in my garage to try to help with the research that I was doing during my PhD. And yeah, I, I was telling him sort of the results that I was getting um, seemed to be uh, much faster than what I would have if I mm. did the experiments at uni. And, yeah, we got chatting and basically just just asked him what he thought about the idea of starting a company and and yeah, sort of not long after that we I came back to Australia and um, it was both of us up and running. And how did you uh, secure the first investment? So, <laughs> so it was actually my so after quite I'll probably say maybe nine months of, of both of us working in the garage and sort of progressing the results. One of my PhD supervisors, the late professor Stuart Wenner, he, he saw the progress we were making and he introduced Dr. Zhengrong Shi from Suntech, who founded previously the world's largest solar manufacturer, uh, to come to my PhD review that year. Helpful uh, intro. Yeah, and he, he came <laughs> and checked out sort of our, our setup that we had in our garage. And it wasn't long after that that, yeah, he was very interested in what we were doing and, and made the first investment. And yeah, he joined the board together with Sylvia Talip, who founded Dysol, uh, which was previously listed on the ASX. Mm. And that allowed us to sort of grow our team and set up in Wollongong. And we've been here for five years now and now looking at uh, expanding our operations back, back in Sydney. Talk about the mission that you had when you raised your first investment. How did you sort of pitch it and, and how has it evolved? I mean, in terms of the mission that we have, I mean, sort of what's driving us, I thought for me at least, obviously we, we are in a, a very fragile uh, period in time. And I mean, everything that we are doing is to try to accelerate the day in which we can continue to progress as a civilization without the expense of destroying the environment and i think that that motivates uh, that motivates us motivates the team it's just trying to do the best we can in, in making some contribution and yeah. in alleviating our dependence on on uh, burning fossil fuels yeah. and uh, sort of in, in the early days as well our investors so jangrong who founded suntech also very passionate about the environment and yeah, yeah he was one of the he started Suntech, which is one of the sort of pioneer solar manufacturers in China. So yeah, sort of, it's definitely a collective passion, I think. Mm. A collective calling, yeah, I suppose. Speaking with General, I think uh, I'd like to share some of the, the stories. It was actually, it was a previous question, like how, what bring us together, kind mm. of together. It was actually quite funny. So I wasn't actually working in Citibank. I was already back in Australia. I just finished my uh, postgraduate degree. 
And it was one day Vince gave me a call. I was quite surprised. And he's like, mate, you want to, you want to do a Compton together? This is like, very <laughs> and I was actually quite surprised because I've never seen myself being in the solar industry. This is some sort of industry I'm kind of completely strained with and completely new is out of my comfort zone because yeah. So I thought this for quite, quite a while and it, it's, it probably feels like, um, an investor or a VC make a, a investment decision to an early stage startup. First, you have to make sure uh, it's, it's on the right track. And second, the rest is all about the people, right? So when I was thinking about, oh, is this the right track to do? And because I mean, as you mentioned, our first mentor and also our first investor, John Rong, he's kind of like a legend in, in among all the next generation of the Chinese students. Like what, what he did, he founded SunTac back when I was doing uni. So he's, his story is kind of quite spreaded among all the, all the, all the, quite all inspiring. The, yeah, very inspired all the, all the students as well. And it kind of like drew my attention towards solar industry. And also the funny things Vince probably didn't mention, uh, when I was doing undergrad, sometimes after, after my class, I go to Vince, there was a Vince was cheering some of the classes and I, I kind of like sneaking in his classes just because I was interested. Mm. And uh, yeah, so yeah, it was definitely some, some kind of areas in the industry I was very interested. So yeah. And also I think the second thing is the right people. And as been said, you have to find, you, if you want to ever work with someone to start a business, you have to find someone you trust and also to share the same value, vision and moral standards and everything. I think to find a long-term business partner, it sounds a bit, it sounds a bit weird. My kind of assessment probably not the right word is is the christians uh, seven things so if you want a sustainable kind of business relationship with someone right if someone has greed envy sloth or pride is definitely not someone you can work with in a long time mm. i think rest i'm okay with rest because <laughs> with the people that would bench that temper as long as the intention is good and yeah, so Vince was definitely the right person. And yeah, I mean, we really have nothing to lose. So we just, just fuck it. I think, I think, yeah, we're living together, obviously, is a, um, at the moment, a testing, a testing point. Um, you guys are still, you guys are living together now? No, no. no. Oh, I was going to say, <laughs> uh, we live close to each other, but we're not in the same, uh, not in the same, same building. So what do you do day to day then? especially in the earlier days when to me, it seems like this deep tech engineering problem that you guys are trying to solve. How did you a get up the learning curve, B dive into the, to the day-to-day operations? I think for us, the, the, the big thing in terms of learning and progressing what we're working on is, is just trying to iterate as quick as we can. And I think that was kind of the, uh, a bit of a difference in terms of uh, the early days doing doing research kind of outside of the university, we were able to iterate much faster. And part of that as well is, is building the equipment that's needed to run the experiments and trying to do that through university. Yeah. In terms of all the procedures and policies and how you know, things just take much longer. So all, everything that we're doing is just to reduce iteration cycle and just go faster and faster and, mm. and just accelerate sort of our, our progress as quick as we can. So like we can, we can test an idea mm. uh, 
and see if it's if it's a good idea sort of in the time frame of days rather than weeks or months that sometimes kind of universities are bound to so it was really just yeah iterating as quick as quick as we can and, and doing the experiments building the tools and doing everything kind of in-house mm. i think yeah one thing that's maybe a little bit different to how we operate compared to a university at the solar cell level what were some of the tools or operations that you built early on that really helped accelerate your progress a lot of it very early on was so the equipment is obviously very rudimentary mm. a lot of the materials were kind of sourced at bunnings and jcar and <laughs> but i mean it was it was enough for us to get going i mean the best prices it's just the beginning yeah that's it so we we're definitely the uh the favorite customers the, the regulars and yeah we were able to it, it gave us enough to sort of get going and, and start to understand what ideas are worth pursuing further and which which ideas are not are not looking promising mm. and then it was just sort of again just mass iteration mm. from those early ideas what were some of the milestones that you set uh when you raised the very first investment and then from your seed round when you raised a round from blackbird so when we when we first raised our first investment it was really the focus was around the equipment design so further progressing the research and a big part of that was the equipment um, that is needed to to do the research and accelerate the progress and with the second uh, round of investment which was in 2018 we at that time we were a team of three making tiny little copper cells with no efficiency operating in a tent that we bought from Bunnings. Mm. Not too far off what you would see in something like Breaking Bad. Mm. <laughs> uh, we, we remember when, when Nikki, Rick and Sam all came down to Wollongong and uh, yeah, I, I think it was very different to what they were expecting. Mm. And yeah, we, from, from that, from the second round of investment in 2018, we really set ourselves four main objectives. The first was to scale from those lab size cells to a commercial size cell, which is more than a hundred times larger in area. The second milestone was to establish collaborations uh, with some of the top companies and institutions around the world. As we mentioned earlier, we only do one small step in the entire manufacturing value chain. So by working with these other partners overseas, they are able to, to do all those other steps and allowing us to focus on our core value-added copper process. The third was to build a technical advisory board. Something that Dave and I lack is, is experience, and that's to kind of balance that out. And the fourth, which was the main one, was to, to show that we could, we could at least match the efficiency that can be achieved with silver. And we have since shown that we can actually surpass uh, the efficiency achieved with silver. And in the process, to the best of our knowledge, we fabricated the most efficient commercial size solar cell ever made in Australia. You. <laughs> we actually originated from the garage and we evolved in a tent. But we did something that can't be really uh, accomplished in a well-established lab that was hugely well-funded. We achieve something like these people can't achieve. That's huge. And what were some of the the hardest moments in, especially those product milestones that you hit? And on a technical level, I think that the, one of the most difficult things is, so you might have a process, but trying to get it to act 
uniformly across a much bigger area is a, is a much more mm -hmm. difficult challenge. So I mentioned earlier, a commercial size solar cell is sort of a hundred times bigger than a lab size mm -hmm. cell. Mm -hmm. And if you want to make a commercial size solar cell, it's like, it, in a way, it's like making a hundred tiny little lab size cells all in parallel and they all have to be exactly the same. And I think as well, it's, it's where um, sort of some technologies, I think in the lab, um, struggle mm -hmm. and and yeah that was kind of yeah a lot of our focus was like was actually kind of iterating on ideas on how to demonstrate our process on a on a larger area uniformly mm. why have you decided to rely on other companies external parties to help with the solar panel itself why have you decided to focus on that sort of unit copper level problem yeah, so if, if you look at the entire uh, manufacturing value chain, there's actually a lot of steps involved in, in making a solar panel. And if we wanted to basically do everything ourselves, we would need to raise a bucket load more capital, sort of 10 times, 20 times more capital. And just focusing on our copper step, uh, which is one out of about well, 20 to 30 steps in total, that allows us to be relatively sort of light in terms of capex which is obviously a good thing for a startup. And it's probably also sort of a bit of a differentiating factor compared to a lot of other clean tech startups in the past. So there was a whole bunch of companies in the past, sort of in the last decade that raised very large amounts of capital, try to compete against the entire value chain and yeah, didn't do so well. So we were kind of, we started SunDrive on the back of- Clean tech graveyard. Yeah, the tech uh, bubble that burst sort of a decade ago mm -hmm. and yeah we just wanted to sort of looking at the entire value chain go after sort of the most critical Pretty cool. influential yeah. step in terms of cost and efficiency mm. and starting point were you alarmed by i guess the bubble bursting and then consequently starting the company yeah so this this bubble bursting is I think it had more of an effect in the US. Yeah. Um, so I remember as well, prior to our seed round, yeah, we went to the US to gauge their interest. And <laughs> uh, yeah, as soon as you bring bring up clean tech, so, this is, you know, we're working on clean tech. They're sort of already running for the hills there. They just, just freak want, out. Yeah, they just don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> yeah, so that was, that was definitely a, sort of an experience mm -hmm. for us. So yeah, we, everything that we're doing is kind of a little bit differently. We just want to keep CapEx light, focus on the most critical step, which we believe is finding a replacement to silver. And yeah, that really becomes our, our starting point. Talk about, I guess, where you sit in the sequence of manufacturing steps and how you think about making money. So just give you a bit of background to make a solar panel. There are four main steps. First is um, refine the silicon. So what they do is they have to put silicon into heat and the purity of the silicon required is, is 69. So 99.69 is after the, the, the dot. Then they put it into, into the ingot. Then that, what they do after is called that they slice the, the ingot with diamond wire. What is an ingot? Ingot is like a. It's kind of like it. The closest analogy is probably kind of slicing bread. So right. ingot is you you bake the loaf of bread, mm. and that's kind of step one. 
And then the second step is you use a diamond wire to slice mm -hmm. the, the, so the, this ingot into really thin pieces, then it becomes a silicon wafer. Then the next step, which is also what we do, is turn the silicon wafer into solar cell. So what you do is you, it's actually called metallization process, is you put electrodes, as we previously mentioned, uh, put electrodes on the, on the wafer, then it becomes solar cells. Then the last step is to put the, the solar, pulse, solar cells into uh, modules and panels. So we actually focus on the most critical step, which is from wafer to cell. This process actually determines the efficiency of the solar cell, so which is in the industry, the most critical step as well. Yeah. And are you guys sort of toasting the bread in that analogy? Yeah, so the sort of uh, baking the loaf is like making the, making the silicon ingot. Yeah. Cutting the loaf up is like making the silicon wafer. And then if you're making toast, putting butter on it and a bit of Vegemite on it, that's turning the, uh, the wafer into a finished cell. Mm. And arranging all your pieces of toast on the plate is like making the panel. <laughs> <laughs> this is close so to good. Like, think of an analogy. But... Yeah. And then you'll be, so the business model for you guys is then... So for us, we, yeah, we mentioned earlier, we're not in the business of trying to uh, manufacture the entire value chain. We're, we're focusing on our, our, our copper step, which Dave mentioned is the last, the most critical step in the turning a wafer into a cell. And for us, we, that, that's what we want to manufacture is that step. So we, we would receive partially complete solar cells uh, from existing manufacturers. We would then apply our copper step and then either return them back to them or turn them into our own modules that are ready to be installed. And how are you approaching that now as you scale up production? What are sort of the next steps and how are you approaching that? So our, our next steps, so I mentioned earlier, sort of the last, last couple of years, the focus was scaling from lab size cells to commercial size cells. Our next phase is to then scale from individual size a commercial size solar cells to a full-size panel that can be installed on someone's roof so that's kind of the first objective the second objective is to continually push for higher and higher solar cell efficiencies and then the third is to which is the big one is to design and, and build our first uh, automated prototype production line so they're the uh, sort of our goals for the next the next 24 months Gosh, have you started thinking about how you would begin a production line? So we, for us, we, we, in terms of the equipment that's needed, it was, it, there was a lot of thought that was put into the equipment designs right from the very beginning. So we've already got sort of the blueprints of, of what is needed. Mm. And the focus is really just on sort of the engineering side to put it all together and, and mm. Yeah, demonstrate that our, our technology is suited for, for mass manufacturing. How big is the scale? Do you need to prove it on a, on a really small scale first, get the sort of backing in and evidence that you need to then raise a much larger round where you can then build out a proper production plant? Mm -hmm. So at, at the moment, we, we have sort of individual um, pieces of equipment that we currently use. Uh, so the next 24 months is really to kind of piece them all together and have a, a fully automated kind of production process from the start to the, to the end of our copper process. Once we've shown and demonstrated that, 
we we then need to scale up in terms of the throughput, which is the number of cells that can be made per unit of time. And we also need to yield. Yeah, improve yield. So that's sort of how many solar cells are good enough to go into a panel. Mm. And then we also need to focus on the sort of the, the cost side of it as well in terms of the equipment design. Mm. How, how will you distribute your end product to your customers? So I think that comes down to what specific business model um, we choose. So we may, we may return the completed solar cells that have copper on them back to the manufacturer, or we may turn it into our own, into our own panels that we can install on people's roofs. And for us, we also see there's a, there's actually, a, I think a, a really big opportunity in terms of branding a solar company. If you talk to someone on the street and ask them, can you name a solar company? I think they would probably struggle. <laughs> uh, yet yet sort of putting a solar system on someone's roof is the third most would be i think for most people the third most expensive purchasing decision so there's definitely a, a, a branding and sort of marketing opportunity there so we would yeah kind of uh look into yeah new ways of, of branding ourselves and and trying to yeah just focus on the end customer switching gears a little what was it like starting the business in Wollongong, are you going to stay there forever? So for us, the reason why we actually moved to Wollongong in the sort of five years ago was, was purely, was cost. You can get a much bigger place. Mm. You guys Um, don't have to live together. Yeah, that that as well. (laughs) And yeah, once we kind of hit all our, our milestones, particularly sort of in the last phase, yeah, we're sort of at that stage now where we really need to scale up and, increase the team size and sort of level up on our ambitions. And yeah, for us, I think moving, moving back to Sydney was, is, a, is the right decision. What kind of recruits is SunDrive looking for to join the soon-to-be army? <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're, a, we're a very different solar company. We're, we're a solar company run by young people, uh, not scientists and not professors. And we're operating in an industry that is so heavily influenced by academics and professionals. We don't really care that much about degrees, qualifications and experience. If, if you have the right attitude, drive and character, uh, then you're in. What's the sort of character that you're looking for in candidates? I think it, I think it really just comes down to being able to push yourself out of your comfort zone and be willing to, to try things that are very different and also be open to <clears throat> maybe trying things that could fail, but you just try it anyway. And then you learn from it and you, um, you iterate again on the next time, uh, sort of on the next attempt. I think also is, but just believe something, then just do it. No matter who you're competing with and you just have to believe yourself. So we're actually in, a, in an industry that we're competing with the giants that was funded by billions of government fundings and stuff. But yeah, we're, we're doing kind of a technology may eventually crash what they're doing. So yeah, you just have to believe what are you doing and you just do it. Just I commit. Just commit. Love that. Convict. What sort of experience... So there's quite a wide range of people that we're looking for from uh, solar cell processors to solar cell engineers. Uh, a big part is building this prototype production line. So mechatronic engineers, machinists, 
we're also in the process of we're sort of on the hunt for a founder EA or chief of staff. So quite a wide ranging, quite a wide, wide range of roles we're, we're looking for. Can you talk a little bit about how UNSW has been helpful to you guys? I think, well, so traditionally universities would like to, so, so how they work with the companies is they um, license their IPs to big companies in return for royalties. But as a startup, we, we definitely don't have the resources um, to do that. So thanks to Vince, PhD supervisor, Allison, and also late professor Stuart Wynnum, and also the, all the helps we receive from New South Innovations, which is the organization manage all the IPs for UNSW. Uh, they've been super supportive and very flexible and open with, with our kind of agreement negotiation. And so we end up to get the, getting the worldwide exclusive perpetual license, which is, is a key piece of our IP and for a very small equity stake. And it's actually quite unusual for a solo startup at the time. And I think working with universities has a lot of advantage for, for startups. I think it's very critical for startup to build a strategic relationship with, with, with the university. It actually works quite well in the US. And I think Australia is starting to do the things like this. So at UNSW, they have Uniseed and also Founders 10 is like a program, it's like incubator to accelerate all the programs that was founded in uni. And I think working with university definitely help us the most is um, adding credibility to, especially at when we were early stage. So at early stage, we try to source some of our experimental materials from overseas and because nobody had ever heard of a, a company, a small startup in Australia, and they kind of like, who are you? Then they, they kind of, kind of rejecting our, our willing our expressing of interest of like a full one form of some sort of collaborations. So since uni become so since university become a, share, a shareholder in Sunrise, they actually had a lot of credibilities in Sunrise, especially mm. for for Chinese manufacturers because um, USW is a world renowned kind of institution, especially in solar kind of area, and this definitely helped us to kind of source the ex experimental materials that we needed and also kind of help us spread the networks god you you don't know how like you the university alumni network is going to surprise you with how powerful it can be i think that's another advantage of working with the university i think the most important thing for us is to have the access to all the talent at the universities so, so the current team and also the, the future teams that we have, we're planning for is a lot of people that we have been in touch with the people from the USW. So That's a really fortunate story. There are often, as you sort of alluded to, other universities and other systems and structures where the IP can be locked up inside the university. Do you have any advice for founders who are trying to navigate that sort of dilemma? I think that's might be a misperception just from my personal kind of perspective, because as I previously mentioned, our negotiation with the union were very smooth. And second, I think a startup shouldn't be too heavily IP driven. And also at the early stage, 
it might be actually a good thing for uni to manage your IP because uh, managing IP is a really pain in the ass process. It's actually a lot of lot of drafting, a lot of kind of examinations and etc. So it's very resource intensive. Yeah, it, at the very early stage, asking the university manager is a very good thing. I think. Mm. What should... uh, just to add in a little bit there is, I think this is a lot more common in the US where universities really get behind and encourage, for example, students to start companies. So we, as Dave mentioned, we, we did get an exclusive worldwide perpetual use to a key piece of IP in exchange for a small sort of equity stake. So I think if there's other startups that are trying to sort of use IP from universities, obviously a, a very strong angle is the, is the, equity, is the equity card. And I mean that, yeah, I think universities, I mean, the way they've been operating up until net, quite recently is just licensing to very big yep. companies for royalties rather than taking, taking an equity stake. So I think, yeah, it's, it's really kind of emphasizing on the, on the equity. Mm. Where do you think Australia sits on the world stage for renewable energy? I think in terms of adoption, of renewable energy, we're definitely punching above our weight. We, in Australia, we have the highest number of household solar panels installed per capita anywhere in wow. the world. So the actual sort of, in terms of the general public acceptance of, of solar, for example, that's, that's right up there. In terms of developing technology, I think that's also something that we're very good at. So the current commercial solar cells today were invented in Australia 30 years ago. Mm. That technology is obviously largely produced in China, and yeah, we're, everything that we're doing is to try to to try to develop that technology here. Mm. Uh, yeah. What are some of the other things that the government um, could do? So just to check with you, we uh, we actually did just receive a uh, a government grant. Yeah. So yeah, big shout out to uh, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. Massive uh, shout out. Yeah, supporting us sort of throughout early stage developments. Yeah, so I, I mean, obviously the government is very influential, particularly in this industry. And I think the energy in, energy business in general is is sort of on a very national strategic level. And there's obviously reasons why Australia provides twenty nine billion dollars worth of subsidies to the <clears throat> to the fossil fuel industry. So I think the best thing that the Australian government can do that has worked well in China is to is to put solar as a national strategic priority. Mm. From manufacturing right through to exporting solar energy via long distance transmission lines to other continents. And I think we, I think as sort of, I think Australia is probably the best positioned country in the world to, to put and to, to sort of, to make the most of this opportunity. We have, we have the best people, a lot of the executives and the solar manufacturers around the world were trained in Australia. We have the ability, I mentioned before, uh, today's solar cells were manufactured, uh, were invented in Australia 30 years ago. Uh, we have the need, we have the highest number of uh, household solar panels per capita anywhere in the world. We live on the sunniest continent and we're blessed with the best resources and raw materials in the ground needed for solar manufacturing. So that, like, the main component, which I mentioned earlier, is silicon. It comes from sand. There's an abundance of that. <laughs> The other main components to make 
solar cells or solar panels is copper. We have the second highest copper reserves. We have the second highest aluminium reserves. We have the second highest nickel reserves. And yeah, I think it's a, it's a real opportunity where Australia can actually make the sort of the finished product. A lot of the minerals that Australia uh, exports around the world is in raw form. So only a very small sort of percentage or portion uh, of the final product is actually captured in Australia. And by making sort of the end product, I think a lot more value creation um, can happen. So much more. Jeez, Louise, that's a lot. <laughs> I didn't know that we were actually in such a strong position to really lead the charge. Yeah, I, I, yeah. as I said, I think we're in the best position mm. uh, compared to yeah any other country in terms of yeah, how much sunshine we have. And I really think we have everything that's needed for, for Australia to be the first solar-powered developed country. Mm. Key here. Thank you so much, guys. Oh, thanks for, right. uh, thanks thanks for having for us. Really having us. Now it's time to hear from Blackbird partner, Nikki Shabak. Over the past 15 years, Silicon Valley has almost created a, a clean tech graveyard where there are skeptical questions of what, what on earth are you doing? Hasn't this been tried before? What's your interpretation of the clean tech investments and how have you kind of seen it play out? Yeah, I think it's it's very similar in a way to what happened last year with SoftBank Vision Fund on one side and WeWork on the other, where you had this incredible run of software investments and this kind of side turn into people convincing themselves that technology businesses, uh, that businesses were technology businesses, where in fact they were some other type of business. And I think with clean tech 15 years ago, when there wasn't the infrastructure, when there wasn't the ecosystem around these companies, when everything wasn't as cheap as it is today, you had a similar kind of side turn down, down a dead end road of people convincing themselves of uh, companies being technology companies, when in fact they were manufacturing companies or very sort of capital intensive um, businesses that, that, that weren't purely technology. I think there's a, there's another good kind of dot-com historical analogy in that if you took every bad idea that was created in 1999, it turned out to be a good idea by 2015 or 2020. And so where people think of pets.com, now you have sort of multiple public companies worth $5 billion plus selling uh, pet food online. And so it wasn't that the ideas were bad, it was that the time wasn't right. And I think particularly now in certain parts of clean tech, it's now interesting, it's now possible, and it's now cheap to get started and to prove things. And so the, the sort of investment principle at Blackbird that we have is, is what we call something we call units of progress. So we will invest in anything if you can operate within the constraints of the venture capital industry, which is in a seed round, you get a few million dollars and you get 12 to 24 months. With that amount of money and with that amount of time, what can you achieve that is uh, interesting? And in the case of SunDrive, for you know one and a half million dollars, you got you know proof that they could build uh, one of the world's best solar panels. That they were the uh, first in the world to um, be able to bond and have copper used in the process of producing a solar cell instead of silver, which is incredible. You know, previous decades it's lock yourself in a lab for 10 years and then pop your head up at the end. It's spend hundreds of millions of dollars. It's build a huge facility. And 
get a politician to cut a ribbon out the front of it. And all of that is now changed with founders, just like Vince and David, being able to accomplish so much uh, with so little capital and so little time. What will be the key variables for reinventing the infrastructure of society or at least enabling the 5 billion plus people to live sustainably and I guess live the life that at least 500 million people are lucky enough to live today? I think you just have to make it dirt cheap. I think, as you can see, you can't rely on the government. You can't rely on people sort of tilting the system in favor of helping the environment. And so the exciting thing about solar is that it requires no, you know, as much as people complain about the government and what they're not doing, as, as much as people um, get into political debates, the reality is that solar is just cheap, um, cheaper than all of those, you know, sort of more ruinous forms of energy. And so I think you just have to keep making it cheaper and then it just becomes more and more obvious and then it just um, inevitably happens. And then you have to continue to make technology breakthroughs to make it cheaper and cheaper, but you also have to make it possible from the point of view of, you know, if we just keep making silver-based solar panels cheaper and cheaper, actually that's a dead-end road because you run out of silver before you can generate the, all of the world's electricity. So I think it's just a simple question of make it really cheap and the world will move to it. How does Blackbird think about joining what is a science project to a business? I think you always have to think through the whole sequence of events and place yourself right down at the end of the road and think, will you have a great business? And will you have all of the qualities of a great business in terms of defensible positions, high margin, friendly sort of financial profile and so on and so forth. And, you know, an example with, with Zooks, the robo taxi company, everyone was instantly in love with the end of the story of this consumer service that reduced deaths on the road, moved us to renewable power, uh, had extremely friendly unit economics because the cars were driving themselves. And, and so in, in a similar way, you know, we have to believe at the end of the road for SunDrive. And again, people, solar has come down so much in cost, but you know, you can take that for granted. And there still is a number of big technology leaps forward that, that are required for it to continue to keep going down in price. The other sort of factor is that, you know, the road that we're on using silver in solar panels is a dead end road. It's, you know, solar's 3% of the world's energy provides 3% of the world's energy, but you know, each year, 20% of the world's silver is used to produce those panels. So it's going to hit a limit, whether it's you know 15% or even less, if we consume more total energy overall, we're going to just run out of silver to actually build the, the solar panels. And so I think everyone at Blackbird believes at the end of the road, a world powered by the sun is a world that we want to be in. We believe in uh, sort of deeply differentiated technology and hence, you know, believe that SunDrive can build a high margin, great product or great process in, in, in their case, such that they can fit in into that world and have deeply differentiated technology and be a wonderful business. With so we don't mind waiting for that, but we have to fall in love with the end story. Hmm. Has SunDrive articulated a distribution strategy to, I guess, handover from old solar energy to new, which is hopefully SunDrive? SunDrive fits within the ecosystem of solar. So SunDrive takes in the silicon sort of base elements of the solar panel. It applies its copper 
process and then it gives back that finished solar cell to the people that then take multiple cells and manufacture it into a solar panel and then uh, install it into a you know, person's home or a business's premise. And so SunDrive is fitting into that existing ecosystem. You know, think of it as a physical kind of API into it and SunDrive is specializing in that first step, but that, that sort of second step rather, and that second step can bring down the cost of that whole panel by a huge, huge amount. It can make that panel much more efficient. So you, you generate more power for each panel and so therefore, you know, SunDrive can create a great business because it can do that very, um, very cheaply. What have you seen in SunDrive from their seed round that really impressed you? I always like to say around the office, the world is divided into smart people who talk about things and smart people who do things. And it is just incredible, as we were saying, that you can make so much progress with so little capital and so little time. And Vince and Dave and the whole team um, have just done everything that they hope to do in the seed round. You know, when we make an investment at Blackbird, we, we think very deeply about what are the three most important things um, that need to happen to show that unit of progress in, in the first um, seed round. And again, they just smashed all of those milestones that are complained about things. They're very sort of down to earth and lovable characters. And it's just a pleasure to work with them. And if you do what you say you're going to do, we will always love to invest more money into those uh, stories. What do you think are the biggest risks that confront a hardware company? It's different in every case. And hardware is a very big world, uh, is a very big word. In the case of SunDrive and its product, you have to believe that people are willing to pay less, get more, and have energy generated by the sun. So that's not something that in, in many cases in the Series A, you probably have some initial customer proof, but you're not sure if it's a big market. I think in, in many cases in hardware companies, and I would say this is true in SunDrive's case, where it's probably more of a technical risk. No one has uh, manufactured solar panels with copper at scale before, but you don't have to you know, spend too much time thinking about if people could generate energy for much cheaper and do it from the sun, would they like to do that? I think the, the answer is yes. So I think in, in SunDrive's case, it's more of a scaling question. Again, a lot of hardware startups can prove something in the lab or prove something in a small way, but fall over when they try to make a lot of it or they try to go mainstream with it. And the Series A round is usually sort of proving out the first couple steps. I wouldn't say it's completing the journey of saying, how are you going to do this um, at scale? And perhaps, you know, in those types of companies, there's, there's usually less um, of a market risk to compensate for all of the, you know, scaling up risk. What are some of the other types of energy themes have you noticed? Are any of them interesting to you? Is Blackbird open to investing in energy? I would say, um, we're open to not. Uh, we're open to investing and in not ruining the environment. Um, that that's the heading. Uh, that's the correct heading for me because so many different things that we do, whether it is producing food, whether it is sort of getting rid of our garbage, whether it is making plastic, whether it is making cement, whether it is driving cars and using gasoline. Behind all of them, usually energy and particularly sort of ruinous forms of energy. But I think about it in terms of what are the activities that are now ruining the environment and are the different technology approaches that we can take that, that fixes that, that rights that wrong. And so 
you know, we have invested in a garbage company in Beyond Ag, which I view as a not ruining the environment company um, or clean tech or whatever you might want to call it. SunDrive is a bit more literal. It's at that base level of energy infrastructure, and I'm sure we'll find more and, and varied opportunities there. But I think think through the lens of, you know, we've made investments in plant-based protein and cultured meat companies. That is a, you know, clean tech company, or that is an not ruin the environment company in my mind. So I think from the, what are the activities we're doing that are not sustainable and let's fix those activities. And we'd love to invest in those new solutions and new ways of going about things. Mm. For a company that's based in Wollongong, have you or the team discussed any interesting ways to acquire talent? SunDrive started out in a warehouse in North Wollongong and that was in, in sort of the seed round and the first kind of half dozen people. It's enough to sort of uh, build from your own network. Now, actually, um, as part of this round and moving office to kind of a suburb in the Shire called Kirawi. So moving closer to Sydney again to be able to attract that talent. I think there's sort of some um, logical barrier in a lot of people's minds who live in Sydney that Wollongong is far away versus, you know, Wollongong is not not very far from the definition of Southern Sydney, but they are moving closer to, again, as they sort of scale up their team and to be able to attract the best talent to be nearer to that talent. I think being from Wollongong, it's just that cultural sort of nothing bothers them, you know, can-do attitude. I built you know, a clean room from components from Buddings and JCAR Electronics and everything was done in such a sort of scrappy and again, quick way that I think that sort of DNA and that culture is, is just so admirable. I've invested in another company in Wollongong, Accelo. They've been able to build a great technical team. The University of Wollongong, I would rate as one of the top sort of three computer science programs in New South Wales. So, you know, all kinds of companies and, you know, perhaps even particular software companies, you know, Wollongong is, is a great um, source of talent. Love it. Thanks, Nikki. Excellent. Thanks for having me, Mason. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. If you have any questions or feedback, we'd love for you to send us an email. Wildhearts at blackbird.vc. I hope you'll subscribe. And if you liked the podcast, we'd be super grateful if you left us a review. Thank you so much for joining me and I'll see you in a fortnight.